been a good start to the feast so far. Would you agree? Earlier this year, end of the summer, I had a conversation with a fellow from work. We had just gotten back both from some time off, and I had asked him how he spent his vacation. And he told me that he had read a lot. He's a, a single, single man, spends a lot of his spare time reading. And he had read a biography of Henry VIII. And his comment to me was that he didn't realize what an evil, evil man he was. You hear stories, you hear what King Henry VIII was like, bigger than life itself, and what he thought of himself. But as he went through this biography, he was fascinated, amazed at just how evil he was. And those, that was his word, not mine. He said evil. He said he knew he was bad. He didn't know he was evil. And this took me back. We had actually had a bit of an interchange on this word evil and the leadership in the world today and all the way back through recorded history about evil leaders and how Henry VIII was just one of an innumerable number of evil leaders. We consider, and we've made reference to it here already, what has gone on politically in the last year, just the last year. We don't need to go back 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Let's just talk about the last year. In the name of progress and enlightenment, what has gone on in our neck of the woods. We have an immigration policy that has changed to the point where barbaric practices of other cultures can no longer be mentioned as in a negative light. We, 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 we can't say that they're barbaric. Even though any human with a heart would be able to tell you that they're barbaric. In our immigration policy in this very country, to come, to come here to seek gainful employment is now an option, not a promise. Come, and if you want, we don't want to offend, maybe, if you need, if you can, get a job. But you don't have to. You don't have to. It's not a requirement anymore. Forever it has been a requirement that our doors are open, but please seek employment. We have a bill, M103, which makes it a crime to, come to negatively speak about one specific religion. And, in fact, I heard no less than the CBC last week actually had an interview with, the, uh, with a minister of government pointing out that the word Islamophobia has nothing to do with racism. Phobia is a fear, and Islam is a culture or a political, a political thought. So it's a fear of a political thought. It has nothing to do with race when you break the words down. And the CBC, no less, pointed out that we have taken these words and we've changed them to suit our own needs. But we're not even using words right anymore. I was stunned that the CBC could point this out. Bill 89 in our province, the, the, the province that you're sitting in right now, now takes away the parents' right to raise children according to their God-assigned genders. If your child says to you, I would like to dress in women's clothes, and you say no, and they bring it up at school, you can be arrested now. It's in the law. It's called Bill 89. 
because to, to not offer that is now considered child abuse. Not parenting, child abuse. A Canadian Christian private school in Alberta was recently told that if it continued to teach from the New Testament, from Paul's writings in Corinthians, that spoke against the act of homosexuality, that their diploma would not be recognized any longer. Let me throw some names out. Omar Khadr, Justin Trudeau, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Kim Jong-un, the liberal mainstream media, Las Vegas, Charlottesville, Ottawa, Washington, the list is endless. And this is just in the last year. We are in a cultural war that has completely divided our two nations. There's no, there's no middle stream anymore. You're either way over here or you're way over here. And this divide is magnanimous now. It's, we, you can't even see the other side. It is so divided. Any hint of Christianity... And you will be labeled, you can be labeled as a bigot, out of touch, and worst of all, politically incorrect. What is even more concerning to me is how easily I see sometimes God's people getting caught up in the rhetoric of these causes. From, trust me, from both sides. From both sides. Regardless of the issue, Regardless of what we're talking about, regardless of any, of any and more of the things I spoke about, on both sides, God's people get caught up in this. While completely ignoring our admonition that we are no longer citizens of this world, but ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We have, as a country, as countries, let's call it what it is, have abandoned God and the Judeo-Christian principles that our countries were founded on. And this is regardless of what revisionist historians will tell you. Our two countries were founded on Judeo-Christian principles of the Bible. Perfectly? Not at all. But just open a history book, and both of our countries were founded on the principles of the Bible. And it cannot, it can't be argued. It, 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 it can't be argued. It is fact. And we were blessed accordingly. But we have completely banned God, Jesus Christ, and the, and the Bible from all of our major institutions. And then we can't understand why we're in the predicament that we're in. It reminds me of the questions Habakkuk asked when he witnessed the rise of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Let's go to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll read verses 2 through 4. Habakkuk, as he's looking out on God's people, seeing the rise of evil being inflicted upon God's people, cries out to God and says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? How long? How long do we have to go through this? Even cry out to you violence and you won't save. 
It's like you can't even hear me cry out about how violent and sick this world is. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. We don't even use the law for right anymore. It's powerless. And justice never goes forth. Habakkuk is saying there's laws in the books that we don't use. And we're seeing evil inflicted upon us. And they're breaking the law. And we don't even use the law to protect ourselves anymore. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. It's like he's watching the the 6 o'clock news today. We could say the same things. How long can you stand by and watch this go on? And do nothing about it. Habakkuk was asking God. As we know, God's promise to use Babylon to teach his people a lesson was temporary. And that was the message he was teaching Habakkuk. That as God, I need to teach my people a lesson. They need to realize the impact of their sin. How that is separating us in this covenant we agreed to centuries before. But make no mistake, I will deal with Babylon, God says. You worry about your sin and get right with me. Let me worry about Babylon. We know this ruler, King Nebuchadnezzar, as the first ruler of this empire called Babylon. The head of gold, as Daniel interpreted. Daniel 4 tells us of a time when for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar completely lost his mind, well into his leadership as the emperor of Babylon, and lived as a wild animal. But these seven years really were just the culmination of a very unstable leader. This wasn't something where all just all of a sudden... Nebuchadnezzar went nuts for seven years. And then the switch went off, and he was normal again. This was the culmination of a process that he went through. So today, what I would like to do is take a closer look at King Nebuchadnezzar and who he was. And in completing this character review, I would like to take lessons from his life and apply them here at this feast as we learn to fear God. And as we learn to become kings and priests in his kingdom. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, we heard. Well, unfortunately, not always. And let's see why. What is the missing dimension in leadership? Turn with me to Daniel 1. The beginning of Daniel We typically read Daniel for its prophetic implications and the hope, as bad as some of this is, the hope that it gives us to know the end of the story, to know how things are going to play out. Today we're going to look at Daniel just a little bit differently. We're going to begin at verse 1, Daniel chapter 1, and see this introduction here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem 
and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasury house of his God. So God allowed his temple to be ransacked and these items to be taken and taken over to this vile place of worship. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Let's help them forget their past. Let's help them to forget all that they've learned. And let's indoctrinate them into the history and culture of what it means to be a Chaldean. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank in three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So as we get this little bit of an introduction here to Nebuchadnezzar, we see, like most kings, he is a very powerful, charismatic, decisive, fearsome leader. This is a man who gets what he wants. And he's, got an, he's established a, a, an educational system to ensure that it stays this way. It's, let's get them while they're young. Let's teach them and bring them up. Let's make them forget entirely about their past, that they were even Jews. Let's make them Chaldeans, and let's let them serve us. Let's raise these young people into positions of leadership and make them Chaldeans. Verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chiefs of the eunuchs. So Daniel here now decides that he hasn't forgotten who he is. He isn't a Chaldea. He belongs to God. And he is not going to pollute himself or get sucked into or get distracted by these tasty little goodies called the, the king's delicacies. He's going to stay true. The chief of the eunuchs, verse 10, said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, I fear my Lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Here's where we get the first real inkling of Nebuchadnezzar's power over the people. It's so important, they don't even want these guys not to eat his food. Because if he gets the slightest inkling that they haven't been eating right, off with their heads. I'm, I'm scared for my life if you don't eat this food. Please, please, please help me out and eat of the king's delicacies. Verse 12. Daniel sticks to facts. Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you in the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies 
And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. Let's just try it out. No harm, no foul. If the king can't tell, then who's the wiser? And at the end of the ten days, verse 15, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portions of the king's delicacies. Try following God's food laws, and let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Let's test God. Let's prove God is right. Very calm and resolved. We have a leader here who is scared for his life, begging someone under him to please comply so that the king doesn't take my head off. And Daniel's quite calm. Let's just, let's just give it a try. Just test it. Quite calm and quite resolved. At the end of the four days, or at the end of the days, verse 18, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before King Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and on all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. And we see here now the introduction of Daniel and his three friends as they began service throughout the Babylonian Empire. And they continued all the way into the Medo-Persian Empire when King Cyrus, many, many years later, overthrew the Babylonians. Continuing on, chapter 2, verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. This wasn't just one dream that he woke up one night and couldn't figure out why he had this dream about this special can of Pepsi with these little buttons on it, and it troubled him. He had dreams, and this was repetitive over and over and over. And this was bothering his spirit. He couldn't figure out where all these dreams were coming from. And they were so far-fetched that it troubled him. And he couldn't sleep. Let's skip down to verse 28 for time's sake. Verse 27, actually. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and soothsayers cannot declare to the king. You're looking for these answers. And your, 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 your team, your folks that you rely on for help and guidance, they can't give you these answers, king. But there's a God in heaven, Daniel says, who reveals secrets. The God of Israel reveals these secrets. And he has made known to King King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. 
And as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what this will be. The reason why he was so scared is because he kind of figured out things weren't, this, this wasn't a good dream. And if what was, going to ha- what was happening in his dreams was going to be true, then this was affecting him. And this was going to affect his kingship. Back to verse 5. Let's go back to verse 5 of chapter 2. So we see Daniel getting into the mind of King Nebuchadnezzar later on and discussing what was making King Nebuchadnezzar fear so badly. Verse 5, the king answered, said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretations, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. He calls everyone in the kingdom known to deal in magic and sorcery and the explanation of these dreams. And he says, either you tell me what is going to happen and I will richly reward you. Or if you don't, off with your heads. There's like no middle ground here. You're either going to be rewarded greatly or you're going to lose your life. This is the leader of the world at this time. And that's how he dealt with his people. Not the Jews, not Israel, his own people. You either tell me what I want to hear or I will kill you. That is the leader of the world. This is the irrationality they were up against. This is why Daniel's supervisor was so scared because he wouldn't eat the king's delicacies. Because they were dealing with someone who was a loose cannon. They answered again, verse 7, and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. I know you're stalling for time here. I've only given you two options, and you're trying to buy some time here. You think I'm stupid? You're just stalling here to preserve your own life. My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. No, what you're asking is impossible. You've presented us with an impossibility. Either tell you the truth, but we have no idea what the, what the point is here, or we lose our lives. You're asking for the impossible. There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. No one's ever treated us this way. Tell us the truth, or we lose our lives. No one's ever treated us this way. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. 
For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Boom, like, I don't know why that's on. Can you throw that? Thanks. Um, Thanks, Lisa. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave command to destroy all the wise men from Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And the slaughtering begins. Instantaneously, the slaughtering begins. This is a maniac they're dealing with here. But Daniel, we see Daniel was calm. Calm and resolved. Calm and resolved. Verse 14. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered. With counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered. The captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of, Israel, of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the, inter- the king the interpretation. And we see Daniel's calmness and resolution and just not overreacting like these others did here. We don't have time to go through here. We won't take the time. But we see in the next set of verses that Daniel awoke from his dream. Calm. Imagine that. Everybody else is all on pins and needles because of this maniac leading them. And Daniel is simply calm. He wakes from his dream calm and confident that God, will answer, God has answered their prayers. What a contrast. We serve the living God, so we have nothing to worry about. And everybody else in the kingdom is worried that they're not going to eat the the right food or the king's going to be mad. The next, from verse 24 through 45, we'll leave the prophetic interpretations aside today. That's not the point of this message, although it's very important. We know the significance they play, and who knows, we might be touching on that at some point later this feast. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they, should be, that they should present an offering and incense to him. Daniel provided this magnificent interpretation because God had answered his prayer and gave him answers. And now King Nebuchadnezzar was a different man. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and is a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Here we see, as good as this is, this is a good day now. King Nebuchadnezzar's having a good day. It's still volatile. All of a sudden, he worships this man, falls prostrate before him. And all Daniel had to do was say something different, and his head would have been chopped off. But now King Nebuchadnezzar himself is falling prostrate before Daniel. Think of that. Think of that. We also see here that while he acknowledged Daniel's God, he maintained a belief in the other gods too, likely hedging his bet here. You've got to play both sides. 
He kept the other wise men on staff. And he made these four gentlemen rulers over the kingdom simply based on the interpretation of one dream. As nice as that was, that's volatile. From, they, were, they were this close to death. One interpretation, and now they're leading the kingdom. That's volatile. One extreme to the other. The king's all mad, and now he's falling and worshiping Daniel. Chapter 3, verse 4. Jump ahead in the story. He made this image of gold, which we're very well familiar with. Verse 4, a herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Failure to worship the image of the king would result in immediate execution. Immediate execution. Verse 13. The Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. The local snitches are observing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they come to the king and say, listen, they're not doing anything you're saying. And you yourself authorized this decree that it's an immediate execution if this happens. So Nebuchadnezzar spoke, verse 14, saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? Or worship the gold image which I have set up? Remember what he just said to Daniel in the previous chapter. Now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. Giving you another chance. When the time comes, you do it. Everything's forgotten about. Everything's good. But if you do not worship... You shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Who is going to deliver you from King Nebuchadnezzar? Utter rage towards them without cause. And complete disregard for the God of gods that he already acknowledged to Daniel previously. Verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury just wasn't a little upset or made a decision. He was went off the deep end. He was full of fury. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is worse than dad looking over. Every kid knows dad's look. When dad doesn't have to say anything, he just looks over. This isn't dad looking over. His face changed. And there was fear amongst everybody except for these three guys. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. We don't do this for anybody, but we're going to crank this up seven times hotter than we've ever done before. And he commanded 
certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind them and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of, their, of the burning, fiery furnace. No regard for safety. We've never tried this before. Seven times hotter than we've ever done it before. We've never done it before. We have no idea what this is going to be like. But you guys, you go do this, and you go throw them in. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and everybody knew when King Nebuchadnezzar was urgent, the furnace exceedingly hot, with total disregard for safety. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was so hot, it killed the guys who were outside the furnace, putting them in. We'll drop down to verse 28. Obviously, we, we know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar sees them. So this was a man who threw them in, and he was right off the deep end. He had reached his breaking point. We see how he's described here. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies, that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. Again, a slight defense of the God of Israel. He doesn't say anything bad about him, or you'll be slaughtered and your homes burned to the ground. Therefore, I make a decree, verse 20, that any people, nation, or language who speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses made into an ash heap, because there is no God who can deliver like this. That's what he said to Daniel. And then he threw these guys in. And now. He's worshiping, he's acknowledging the God of Israel and saying, nobody, nobody say anything bad about this guy. Nobody say anything bad about their God. Chapter 4. Daniel gets through explaining the second dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Dropping down to verse 26, after they get through the explanation, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Everybody has an opportunity for repentance. And Daniel here is preaching this message of repentance to no less than King Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. We heard this morning about mercy to the poor. That that's one of the characteristics of a godly leader. Of a godly king and priest. Here Daniel is saying, you need to repent. Truly repent of your sins. And do this by doing what is right. And showing mercy to the poor. Same message. God's, God's expectations and standards don't change. That's why we see them repeated throughout the scripture. We heard it this morning. We're seeing it here in this sample. And perhaps, Daniel says, perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking about the palace, the royal palace of Babylon. So things are good. Things are good. He seemingly repents. He acknowledges the God of Israel. 
Things calm down. Things are happy. But within a year, he was back to serving his own ego. One year. He was walking about, verse 29, the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon? Look, look at this place. Is this not a beautiful place to be? Babylon? Look what I have done. Look what I have done. That I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. He couldn't even burn up three guys in the hottest fire that has ever been known to man. And now he's completely responsible for all the greatness that is in Babylon. While the word, verse 31, was still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven fell. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The king has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times you shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and ate grass like the, like the oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So it's interesting, interesting here, that after this seven-year ordeal, the last we hear from him is he praised the God of Israel as the supreme and sovereign. Without, He wasn't no longer the God of gods or the strongest of all of them. But he was the supreme and sovereign God. But the fact remains that the empire stayed intact. And God's people remained under Babylonian rule. And they continued to use the temple artifacts in their feasting. So while he acknowledged the God of Israel, nothing really changed. They still used these, those stolen artifacts in their own temple rituals. Because we see that later with Belshazzar, which we won't go into here. This was a volatile king from one extreme to the other. As quickly as he could be fearful, he could be calm and praise the God of Israel and then go back to being fearful and scary and irate and, and have people cowering in their boots. We heard this morning about the leaders of Israel and what it means to be a leader of Israel and what God expects from his people, beginning with the covenant of Abraham. Let's go back and look at those who were not part of Israel. Let's see some of the leaders that weren't part of the covenant people. Let's start back in Genesis 3. We'll touch on it briefly because it was touched, it was 
dealt with today, and I will likely touch on this later this feast as well. But the same verses we read this morning, very quickly, chapter 3, verse 22. At the end of Adam's choice, where Adam chose to turn his back on God and was banished from the garden, banished from Israel, banished from the Garden of Eden, from the presence of God. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. That can't happen, as we heard this morning. That can't happen. Adam chose to turn his back on God. He must leave. He must leave. Now access to God through his spirit, through the tree of life, was cut off. And as we heard, man became completely evil. Let's go to Genesis 6 and see this. Genesis 6. Ten generations from Adam to Noah. And in ten generations... From the Garden of Eden, we arrive at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Not, they make some mistakes from time to time. They drop the ball from time to time. Everybody on the face of the planet, except for we find out one man, is absolutely the epitome of evil. Not one thought is, is in any of my creation's mind that is any good. Everything's evil in ten generations. From the Garden of Eden, in ten generations, to completely, 100%, totally vile and evil. Genesis 10. God cleans up the earth with, uh, with Noah. Completely cleans it up. Is so sorry, he's almost to the point of being sorry he even did this. That's how it's described. So it gets all cleaned up. Noah, his three sons and their wives, and they start all over again. And in three generations, we're back to evil. Verse 8, Cush begot Nimrod. And he began to be a mighty one on the earth. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Sound familiar? The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. And the list goes on and on and on. And here we see Satan beginning to use this evil man to set up a kingdom to serve him. There's God's people, and now we see this man called Nimrod, from whom a lot of stuff since then has come to us. Genesis 16. Genesis 16. We know about the covenant with Abraham. We looked at that this morning. It passes through the son of promise. 
Isaac, and then through his son, Jacob. Now we go over, we could talk about Ishmael, we won't do that. But he was also a wild man, described as a wild man. Here, Esau, chapter 16. Sorry, we are talking about Ishmael. I had Esau in my notes. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And he, not the son of promise, shall be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man. Every man. We've got what's expected of Israel, God's people, which was described for us in great detail this morning. And then we got the other son. And his hand will be against everybody. Everybody. That's going to be what he's known for. And every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. He became a leader of a family of wild men who lived their lives against other people. We could go on and on and on with examples from Scripture as to the volatile nature of leaders. Think King Ahab and Jezebel and how volatile they were. From the Bible, we can go past biblical history and add to that long list of completely unstable leaders that were irrational of thought. Name them. We could, we could make a big list of all the irrational leaders that have stemmed from Nimrod, Ishmael, Esau, all of these folks that worked against God's way of life. Which brings us to today and the rapidly changing conditions that we face in our nations. We talked about it last night. We, we talk about it frequently. Where we were last year, where we were five years ago, where we were ten years ago. You couldn't write this if you tried. You couldn't write what has happened to today. That is how messed up we are. That is how much we have lost connection with reality. With the leaders that lead us. All around the world. Matthew 24. We are here looking forward to the kingdom of God and the peace that doing things God's way will do and will bring to this earth. And what makes it so meaningful, what makes it so important, what makes us long for it so much, is the other option is mind-boggling and we can't even fathom living like that for eternity. We can't fathom this world, continuing to go on the decline that it's going on. And this dichotomy is presented to us here at the feast. God's way versus the adversary's way. And we see it throughout the history of leadership. Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. 
But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the, the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. This is what happens when people are completely devoid of the influence of God. They have no idea what the path they're on. And then all of a sudden, they get to the end of the path, and they didn't realize they were on this path to sudden destruction. They have no clue. They were so caught up in themselves, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, that when they got to the end of this road, they look around, and it's chaos. It's chaos. These days are coming. They're, they're coming. Every day, every, it used to be a few times a year, we'd, we'd come to a Sabbath service and we'd go, well, let's, look, let's talk about what happened this week. It's every week now. Something more mind-boggling is happening. And it's multiple times a week now. It's not even once a week. It's every day. Something, something more exhausting and mind-numbing has happened. But these days are coming. A complete absence of Judeo-Christian values. That's why it's coming. Because God's way is, isn't here anymore. Don't be alarmed or get distracted when these things start to happen. Don't let it bother you. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. We can't let it... We must be resolved. But we must not get distracted by it. We must not get caught unaware. Going, I couldn't even, can you believe what's happening? Yeah, I can believe it's happening because the Bible tells me it's going to happen. And that's why we must continue to talk about these things. To keep each other educated. To keep each other resolved. To keep each other supported. So that we, when these things start to happen and continue to happen, that we maintain our sense of calm. That we maintain our sense of rationale. That we maintain our sense of faithful obedience to God. So that we can be like Daniel and say, okay, I'm... I'm Still not eating it. And let's just see what happens. Or we can be like Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And say, open the door. I'll go in. Ezekiel 28. We gather here, and this is, this is an opportunity for eight days that we get to rejuvenate each other, that we get to build each other up, because we all come from a variety of places, a variety of circumstances, but it is here that we are one body, that we share the Holy Spirit, we share these times with each other. Because when we go away from here, we all go back into different circumstances. We all go back to various trials, whether they be financial trials, health trials, whatever other kind of trials you're going to be going through. Tests. The adversary doesn't want you in this kingdom. you got this big target on your back, and he's trying to, he does not want you there. He can't be there, neither, and he doesn't want you there either. And when we go back, it's this resolve that we've built up, that you're not alone. You're not alone. There's lots of us here. There's all of us out here trying to get through this together. Ezekiel 28. Let's look at how God describes the degeneration of Lucifer into the adversary who now oversees this world. 
Verse 14 of Ezekiel 28. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity, not sin, not transgression, iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. You traded your perfection for violence. And your very core became evil. It wasn't just, I stumbled and I broke a law. It wasn't just, I broke a really big law. It was, I became evil. I became completely evil. That's this degeneration we see. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart, we heard about your heart this morning. That's where it starts. Evil starts in the heart. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You, corrupt your, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground and I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Corrupted wisdom is the key here. We have wisdom. We have the wisdom of God through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But you don't use it. It quenches. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5. Wisdom can be corrupted. If it's not used, if you're not constantly in prayer and in study, staying connected to that lifeline, it can become corrupted. Satan was perfect. Lucifer was perfect. Part of a perfect creation, one of God's ultimate creations. And he became, he became evil. He became evil. If the God of this world... If the God of this world leads from a viewpoint of corrupted wisdom, why should we be surprised when the leaders of this world behave in a similar fashion? If Satan rules from the vantage point of corrupted wisdom, so do the people that work for him. Why are we surprised? And it's both sides. It's both sides of every issue. There's no issue on this earth that isn't being influenced by the adversary. No matter what side the world finds itself on, they both serve the adversary because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. Because they they have this corrupted wisdom that is self-seeking, that idolizes the self, that is all about pleasure for power, pleasure for lust, pleasure for pride. We now welcome cultures and turn a blind eye to honor killings that violate the sanctity of the family unit. The family unit was the very basis of what this entire Bible was written about. And we turned a blind eye because we don't want to offend to people that part of their belief system is they violate this family unit. We won't say a word if you want to practice abhorrent rituals on baby girls. And we won't even mention the need for you to become gainfully employed and contribute when you get here. That's our culture, 
And this is, this is not a, a, any political statement. This is fact. This is what we are becoming. And we get surprised when we see these issues pop up. If you think that these things are totally unfathomable, honor killings, what, what can be done to baby girls, if you think that is absolutely unfathomable, then thank God for the wisdom that you possess by his grace. But don't become unglued by it. Don't, don't become unnerved. Become resolved. Never lose the resolution that God's way is right and that you will stand up for that. Never, ever lose that. This is a beautiful, pristine week that we are spending here. With, we leave, as we sang about twice now in Come to the Feast, we leave the cares out there. We don't bring them in here. That is an evil, evil place out there. It is people that are working for the adversary. Not, not everybody's evil. There are good people. But Satan wants to destroy this world. He doesn't want anybody in God's kingdom. We are here to celebrate this kingdom. And we have an adversary who doesn't want us there. And he's got people that work for him that lead our countries. So don't be surprised when crazy things happen. Don't be surprised. He is the leader that leads through this corrupted wisdom of self-service and idolizing the self. Let's look in Romans 1 as to what happens when people turn their backs on God. Romans 1. When Adam turned his back on God, as he did, and what happens when people choose to turn their backs on God and choose to serve the God of this world? It's a choice. To serve the God of this world is a choice that many have made. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Part of what they want to do is to hide the truth. That's why we, that's why we see political correctness. That's why we see uh, words not being able to be used. We can't use certain words. We can't talk about bibli- certain biblical principles because it's going to offend. This is all about, this is what say, the adversary has in mind. He wants to suppress the truth. So we can't talk about the truth because we're now not allowed to say some of these words that are here. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Worshipping the creation instead of the creator. Sound familiar? This is suppressing truth and unrighteousness. 
And we see this all around us. God doesn't exist. We can't say that. But let's worship the earth. Let's, let's spend all kinds of money worshiping the earth. But we can't say, let's, let's not talk about the Bible. He, God says here that that just shows the foolishness. Foolishness. Therefore, verse 24, God also gave them up to their uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, serving the self. Again, it's all about idolizing the self and satisfying those needs of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Worshipping the self rather than the creator. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. Homosexuality. And there's that great big long acronym now that just it keeps expanding. It's, it's dozens of letters long now. Homosexuality, let me be clear. Homosexuality is a sin that stands out from the rest when it becomes part of what makes society reject God. The belief in marriage and the family is foundational to being a follower of God. That's what homosexuality destroys. But our message, and we must be clear about this, our message is twofold. Homosexuality is a vile, vile sin. It's a sin like any other sin, but it also changes society. And it breaks down marriage, the very, the very basis of our relationship with God. However, if you are a recovering homosexual who acknowledges the vileness of this sin and you want to walk in harmony with God's law and follow Jesus who condemned the practice, you are most welcome here. You are most welcome here. What is unacceptable is the promotion of a lifestyle that suppresses truth in unrighteousness. Our message is twofold. And we get condemned for focusing on one and not the other. From both sides. A repentant homosexual who understands that it is a problem is most welcome. What is not welcome is suppressing truth and unrighteousness and bringing the lifestyle here. That's what's not acceptable in the covenant community of God. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. The list is endless. Uh, evil mindedness. They are whisperers. Now we're not talking these vile sins. Look at what we're reading here now. Whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Because they have rejected God, God has allowed them to live lives devoid of judgment 
That is what debased means or reprobate means, devoid of judgment. They now have a corrupted wisdom. They can't discern what is right from wrong. So they live lives like this because they know no other way. That's why what exists out there happens. That's why the stuff we see week to week and day to day is mind-numbing, and we can't understand it, and it sometimes surprises us because we have the wisdom of God. They operate from a, a corrupted wisdom standpoint, and it makes no sense to the people of God how anybody could act the way they do in whatever you're talking about. Pick, pick an issue. But God has allowed them to live lives devoid of judgment because they rejected him. They rejected his Holy Spirit. Adam rejected God. And since then, those made in the image of Adam live lives devoid of judgment unless God reaches down and calls you and redeems you like he has done here. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to discern right from wrong. Reject God and you lose that ability to discern right from wrong. God says so. You reject me? I'll remove that, your ability to discern right from wrong and let you, live, let you live lives according to fulfilling your lust. And that's what he has done to this world. And they've given themselves over. But Christ has redeemed us. And he's given us his Holy Spirit because he wants people to be able to, to teach this world what it means to live like him, to be kings and priests of God. King Nebuchadnezzar is a fascinating study in the irrational behavior of a leader of this world. That we, see, that we see this throughout Scripture and history shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us, yet it does. Yet we, we are shocked when we see some of the things that we see. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. These leaders work for the adversary. They are part of this series of empires that Daniel talks about will be crushed when Christ returns because there's only one way to do things right. There's only one name in whom salvation exists and that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That we see this happening shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't distract us. It shouldn't unnerve us. We see it throughout history. That it happens today, it shouldn't unnerve us today either. So we gather on the Sabbath and go, oh, look what happened this week. Let's prepare for the next one. Everybody okay? Everybody, everybody on uh, solid ground here? We're not, we're not disturbed by this? We understand where this is going? Let's talk about it. If anybody is disturbed by it, let's talk about it as a, as a, as a family here. But let's not get distracted by it. Let's not get unnerved by it. That we get caught up in the rhetoric as has as, as become so easy to do in this world addicted to social media, that sometimes we get caught up in the rhetoric. Social media is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful tool to preach the gospel. We have, as an organization, changed how we do a few things and are reaching more people on a, on a limited, more limited budget because of the miracles of social media and technology. It is a wonderful, wonderful tool. It also can be an instrument of the adversary that seeks to distract us with issues that are beyond our borders, that are beyond our walls. When we get distracted and caught up in, in those issues, we're getting, Satan is winning, and Satan, gets, Satan is winning. If we want to get involved 
if we want to get involved, we have an obligation as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, as future kings and priests, you want to get involved, point people to God. Point people to this document, to this constitution that that you serve now, that you've signed on to obey, this constitution, this document. You want to get involved in social media? Don't get caught up in either in either side of any of these issues that we see. Get caught up in pointing people to God, in turning people to Christ. Let's go to Daniel 12 briefly. Just a couple more verses here. Daniel 12. Just verse 3. for context, let's go to verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You want, we want to get caught up in the issues that are, that are killing this world? Point people to righteousness. That's our job as kings and priests, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Let's go Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Verse 35. As Paul here writes about the many heroes of faith that we can look to and get comfort and resolve and learn from their example. He writes here, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. We read about four already today. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, and yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. We got it really easy, don't we? Don't we have it really easy? They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, didn't receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They didn't receive safety and deliverance in this life. But they stayed the course, because it wasn't about this life. Therefore, continuing on to the chapter 12, we also, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. All those things that distract us, that take our focus off the kingdom of God, that get us caught up in the issues of this world and take our minds off of becoming like Christ 
and turning others to righteousness. Let us lay all that stuff aside. We sang about it. We promised God when we came here we were going to leave that stuff out there. When we go back, leave it outside of your homes too. Leave it outside of your heart. Leave it outside of your congregations. Leave all that stuff aside. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was that joy? That he could share his glory with us. That was his joy. He had it. We heard about it this morning. He had it. And so you know what? I'll go get him. I'll do this. We don't want to live the two of us forever and ever and ever and not share this glory with our creation. Let me go take care of it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, proving to us that a human being can be changed into a God being. Romans 1 to close. We'll close with the words of the Apostle Paul. Who incidentally himself here also quotes Habakkuk. That reference we made at the very beginning. That prophet that asked God, how long, how long are you going to let people hurt your people? And God said, let me teach them the lesson they need and let me deal with Babylon. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The missing dimension of leadership is quite simply the stability and the peace of mind that the Holy Spirit gives us. To act justly, to act rationally, to not be tossed about to and fro by every wind of doctrine and distracted by things of this world and getting caught up in things that mean nothing, because we know, where, we know where this world is heading. It's not going to get better, no matter who's running it, until Jesus Christ comes himself and crushes it all and starts anew. That's what, we need to, that's what we need to look forward to. That's our message to turn people to righteousness, that they don't need to be part of this mess. They can turn to God and become part of the solution that we are here working on together this week to become part of that solution become kings and priests of God. That missing dimension is the stability that the Holy Spirit brings to true leaders of God. You won't find it out there. No matter how hard you try, no matter who you look to, you won't find it there because it's not there. It's in here, in the ecclesia, in the hearts of God's people who have turned their lives over to God. That's where the answer is. Make it so here in the body of Christ.